You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. We are joined by Teresa Wells-Ditton, longtime, much-beloved local journalist, producer at WTHR, and she's laughing at me, but she is beloved by everybody like me who does PR and media uh, for a living. She has always been uh, terrifically delightful, whether she was saying, yeah, we'll do it, or no, we can't, and that's really all you can ask, and I actually told a couple of uh, fellow PR people today that I was uh, going to be visiting with you, and they both said hi, and they were very jealous, and they wanted to make sure that you were doing okay. And, and who are they? Uh, well, one of them was Jennifer <laughs> Hollowell. She's a um, huge fan that yes. I said I was interviewing, and uh, you know, we have, uh, those of us on this side of the, of the PR media divide, you know, we have our favorites, too. And, you know, you obviously were very kind to all of us. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you, Robert. You were one of my favorites. <laughs> Will always be one of my favorites, as as is Jen. Well, um, you know, she used to be my boss and there's no better person in the world, quite frankly, at what she does. And just as a human being, she's terrific and she's a big fan. Um, one of the reasons for doing this podcast besides marketing veteran strategies my uh, PR company is to be able to have conversations like this with people who I've known for a while about their journey and mostly how Indianapolis has grown and you're witnessing it um Teresa is can I call you TWD you can call me that's uh, what everybody called that's, me that's, yeah that's fine <laughs> just call me TWD sure. <laughs> that's fine I just was frankly too lazy to type in Teresa Wells didn't every time I sent you an TWD email TWD is what it is let's go with it <laughs> uh She's a graduate of Ron Colley High School of Southsider of Lifetime, as I recall. Yes, Southsider. Um, you came across Indianapolis kind of at the same time you were growing up when Indianapolis was growing up, for lack of a better term. Talk about kind of the Indianapolis of your childhood and what you remember. Um, and she will probably mention her father was Marion County Sheriff, much beloved, quite frankly, Marion County Sheriff Jim Wells. What was it like to grow up when you did in Indianapolis? Well, Robert, a lot like you, we're ingrained. I mean, this is it. This is the core. This is what we know, right? Um, I remember it being kind of a little town. It was almost like a town back then, you know, almost like tumbleweeds rolling through the the Capitol Street on any given night. Um, When the Colts moved here, actually, I'll back up. When when the Pan Am Games, when we hosted that, to me, that was the, the turning point for us. For us as a city. It was 79, as I remember. 87. 80, 87, 87. When the Pan Am game, 79 right. is when uh, Knight punched the guy, forgive me, down in Knight Puerto Rico. Knight punched the guy in 79. In that, Puerto Rico, that's right. 87 but is 87 when we, is right. when I think, if I have to go back and say, what was the turning point, that was the start of it. Um, and it's funny that everything that, that, we, that we think about that was the turning point, much of it, maybe not everything, but much of it was, was sports related. Um, so that, that was big. The the 87 Pan Am games were a big deal. We were on the international stage and I was like, my gosh, I live in a big city, even though, you know, 
Let's Perhaps connect the dots there. it wasn't that big city. Yeah, that's, you know, well, it, it felt like it. Well, and you go to other places like Boston or whatever, you're like, oh my God, or Chicago, especially. You're like, uh-huh. oh my stars, this is a huge city. But Indianapolis has got a million people and it's made its mark in more ways. And I want to get back to that. But, but your career in television, you mentioned about sports and Indianapolis kind of growing together, one fueling the other. Indianapolis was also, in my view, quite frankly, to hit the sports lottery at the time that television and sports were actually, they had walked down the aisle, but now they were happily married. What was it like to work in television as a TV producer, Channel 13, during that time when sports became kind of like inextricably linked with the city? Because TV is what helped fuel the sports boom as much as anything. It was that we were the connector to the community. I mean, why was this? Why was this event important? Well, it was our job to explain why it was important, not only from an economic standpoint, but from just the whole community development standpoint and being a part of that and feeling proud. I mean, I think Indiana and people Hoosiers who live here, they they they're they're proud people, and that was the beginning of that proud movement. So it was our job as journalists to tell stories and explain why it was important, but also to connect with people to figure out, you know, or to explain why that was, why that was important and why they should feel proud about it. And the Pan Am Games, I just remember that being the first, <clears throat> that was my first big sporting event that, that I recall covering. And we were in, we were in, we were in with, with everything. We were in every, every sport, every Every little nook and cranny of the community at that time, uh, getting the pulse of people and what they thought. And it was just really, it was a special time. And again, it was the turning point, in my opinion, for when things turned to where they are now. So what was that, 30, 32 years ago? Well, the only thing I really remember about it, quite frankly, is the fact that I was uh, stationed at Fort Ben Harrison and had to move out of my barracks so that the athletes could be housed there. I never heard of the Pan Am Games. All they did is say, well, don't get comfortable because we're getting ready to move you because, you know, the athletes from Argentina or whatever are going to come move in here. It was also famous because that was the year that the U.S. lost the gold in right. uh, basketball. But what is it? Is it because Pan Am, the Pan Am Games too, was like the culmination of everything that Luger and Hudnut had done to that point to make Indianapolis a player on a bigger stage? Is that what it, it was for you? It was you? bigger than that. It was more of a community thing, what all the community leaders had done, you know, to make us a bigger player in the in the game. Um, and then, you know, what, seven years later, we we see the uh, Mayflower move out of Baltimore and look what we have there. <laughs> well, look at, let me ask you another question about that because if memory serves, the Super Bowl that was held here, that was an NBC broadcast? Yeah, 2012. So when you were working on Super Bowl coverage, how often did you think back to the Pan Am games? And like, wow, I can connect the dots between this and that. There's a direct connection between us hosting the Super Bowl and us hosting the Pan Am games. I was just really in awe because I did connect that and then I connected, oh my goodness, how many Final Fours? Um, you know, and now you know, even looking ahead, we've got the national championship coming up and the NBA all-star game. Um, so, but the Super Bowl in 2012, that was, and there were a lot of things written about it and they were all true. It was, it was to me the cherry on the, on, on top. 
of everything we'd worked for since 87. And uh, I think we're the envy of a lot of cities. I mean, you know, you look around even in our region, does Cincinnati get what we get? I don't. I, they may get regional games, but they don't get big things. Uh, you know, and I, know, I mentioned I, in a previous podcast that for the Big Ten Championship, Mike Greenberg from ESPN said, tweeted, Indianapolis is the best big game city in the country. In the country. Not the Midwest. The country. The country. And it's a driver for everything. It's a driver for economics. It's a driver for, uh, again, community engagement. It's a driver for who's your pride. I mean, it's a driver for... It's our identity. I think it's become our identity. And I'm really proud of it. I mean, I think it's, it's wonderful. And you grew up here your whole life, went to Ron Colley High School. Yes. You're a proud rebel. Yes, and, and you are too. <laughs> sort of. You're, you're a hornet by, rebel. Yeah, by, by, <laughs> by parental proxy, by checkbook. Yes, yes I am. Uh, I was proud too for rebel. eight years. <laughs> and what, what made you choose the path that you chose uh, in terms of your career, when did you get the the bug to be in journalism? The bug to be in journalism when I and this is a, I have a good answer on this, a very succinct uh, answer that I, I've thought about many times. When did I get this bug to like this and to want to seek truth and want to seek um, be an advocate for people, um, viewers? Uh, when did I want to? Um, hold people accountable. So here's when. When I would come home in, I think it was 1973, correct me if I'm wrong, when my mom would be listening to the Watergate hearings. So it's I was 11. Water, I was the, 11. It's called the Watergate summer. I'm going to get, I'm going to give my age up. <laughs> but she'd be fixing dinner and I'd come home from school from, from St. Jude and I would, and I walked because we lived close and I would come home, and she would just be beside herself. And I didn't understand exactly what was going on at, at the time. I just knew the word Watergate and hearings. Mm-hmm. And that got me to thinking, what, what is going on, right? So I know I'm only 11. You're not supposed to think about those things at 11, but I did. Then the next thing that came along was the Patty Hearst thing. Right, when she was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation, yeah. Liberation yes. Army. Yes, the SLA. Mm-hmm. And that I couldn't get enough of, and that was before social media and you could just yeah it was phone. for those not around it was a i mean it dominated the news because of because it was her because and of her two wealth. of the people involved with it uh bill, bill and, and emily, emily harris, harris were from iu mm-hmm. so there was an iu connection so that's why i think it got even played up more here <clears throat> and i was fascinated with it just couldn't get enough of it couldn't read enough of it uh, my parents were both newspaper people so in the morning i'd get that paper and i just you know before i went to school i'd read and and I just became fascinated with it. Then when my dad became sheriff, it just, everything just fueled. After that, it was like putting fuel on the fire of, of wanting to get into that, that world. And I, and I did, and I was lucky enough to do it for a long time. And I still believe in it. So, What is your first, um, I, I remember Watergate summer, I, was in, I had AM kindergarten in Irvington. And my mother, who was an inventor at Nixon hater, would cheer on Sam Irwin and the <laughs> And the and the Irvin and the Democrats as they as they took down Nixon, but but I remember to your point Watergate summer that was big, and then you had the resignation. Then right after that you had the bicentennial, so it uh-huh. wasn't all bad. But for the Patty Hearst connection, it was kind of the correct me if I say it wrong, but maybe the, the age of cults 
because the the Hearst kidnapping was only five or was seventy five. 74, maybe yeah. some source. So it's five or six years after the Manson slains. Right. So, you know, and then in 75, I think one of the Manson girls, Squeaky Fromm, tried to shoot yes, Ford. Ford. So it was kind of that weird thing where all these drug addled, hippie, uh-huh. weirdo cults were taken over and you had all these terrorist attacks and hijackings. I could see and where. If it was you, fascinating. It, well, if you got pulled into the news, as you're saying, you got pulled into the news because there was always something crazy happening. But it wasn't on your phone back then. Yeah. It wasn't at your fingertips. You had to seek it out and you had to be really curious. And you can't teach curious. Either you are or you aren't. I mean, you just can't. You can't teach it. What was your first? When did you start at THR? September 11th, 1985. (laughs) And I didn't realize it was September 11th (laughs) until September 11th. Oh, when it was your anniversary. Yeah, I didn't realize that that's when it was, but that's when it was. What was the first big story? I graduated from high school in 86. So I think that's about the time that Ryan White emerged in the news because I remember in 87, I think. Yeah. Well, you remember like your first big story? That was one of them. Uh, The other I would say would be um, the uh, A7 crash into the Ramada out the airport. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't remember how many people died, but it was really funny. Um, I'm a I'm a low heeled girl. I don't really like to wear heels, <laughs> but that particular day, I remember distinctly. I wore heels and a skirt, and I was going to go help gather news. Actually, I think at the state house or something. And we're in the car, ready to go. And we get the call that this that there was a report of a plane into the the, the Ramada at the airport. Oh my goodness! So. Because it was a sunny day as I was in the yeah, military nice out day. in New Mexico. But, I mean, you see it on TV, CNN it covered it. But it was a beautiful, it's like 9-11. Like the planes, how could they have hit the World Trade Center? It's 60 and perfectly sunny, clear skies. I think that's how it was that day. Is that it was. Right? It was a great, beautiful, you know, crisp, early fall day. And um, we went out there, and here I was in those heels and that skirt. And I thought, of all days. <laughs> but I wound up field producing out there. And that's back in the day when you had to send a... A satellite truck out there to beam it up to the networks. Now that's all completely changed now. But, but I remember just just the the scene and the smell, and it really got me that day. You know, it was it was very very surreal. So when you started at THR, you started as a producer or assistant producer yes, or something. Yes, I did. So you... And then I worked my way up into um, planning manager and. Did the assignment management stuff. So, yeah, I, I wore a lot of different hats there. You mentioned technology a few seconds ago. Give us one or two ways that technology has changed journalism from your first day to last day. Uh, the main way is the delivery of the product. I mean, it used to be that you would go home and, uh, or you would have appointment television. All right. right. You got to get it at five or six or 11 or the morning show or noon. Uh, that those are way gone and they're never coming back. So now you get it on your phone with your fingertip, wherever you want it. Okay, so that's how the main thing. So it's delivery of the product. The product hasn't changed that much. In some ways, it has, but <clears throat> for the most part, the core of it has not. It's the delivery. So no longer is it appointment viewing. It's immediate. Immediate. I want it now. And the good story about that, I think we brought up when uh, we talked to Bill Benner was in, ni- in February 22nd, 1980, when the Americans beat the Soviets four to three in hockey. Nobody knew. 
The game was at like seven o'clock, but uh-huh. it was tape delayed, so nobody knew who won till you had to actually watch it. Now that's unfathomable oh, today. Oh my goodness! Yeah. But watching it at the Ellenberger Skating Rink with a bunch of other East Siders, you know, till twelve something at night, but the game had been over for hours, but we just didn't know. Does it? Does it? The technology is it bittersweet because obviously technology makes it easier. You know, the equipment's lighter, the pictures clearer. Uh, the editing, you know, when I had, I had a television show in the army, I had to edit it with a razor blade, with you know, that <laughs> takes you back. Now it's just point and click with the computer. Right. How do you, how do you balance the good with the bad on the technology mm-hmm. evolution? Um, the good is the immediacy. Okay. That would be, you know, and I won't even go any further. The immediacy of getting it when you need it, when you want it, when it should be delivered, um, as it's happening, I mean, we do Facebook Live. We mm-hmm. can go live from anywhere with a backpack on our on our back, um, <clears throat> as opposed to you know rolling a two ton satellite truck to Timbuktu to get what we need. No more. So the immediacy is great. Sometimes I worry about the um, falling into the low hanging fruit basket, mm-hmm. and immediacy can equal low hanging fruit. So. Does immediacy, how does immediacy, what is that? Is that, how meaningful can that be? And I worry that the low-hanging fruit sometimes overtakes the important stuff. How much did, and you weren't there when it, when it aired, but probably the most famous, and you correct me because this is just an opinion, the most famous piece of journalism in in the last 50 years in this city is Tom Cochran's Clan documentary. Now, you weren't that there I was at there the time. then, yes. You were there? Yes. Was that mid, that was a mid to early 80s is that when it came out? I think it was mid 80s. It was right mm-hmm. after I had started there and I was fascinated. I was like, oh my God, they infiltrated the Klan? Because it, you know? it has the big Emmy. If you go to the channels, I've been interviewed in front of your Emmys many times at Channel 13. Yes. And I always go, do you want me to stand in front of the bit? They won the Nash, not the regional, the national Emmy for this. This they was infiltrated huge. the Klan. I mean, that's really hard to do. In the interviews that they aired on television had language. You're just like, I can't believe they're allowing this. But I mean, it was relevant to what they were covering. What do you think of that piece or that sort of journalism or maybe another two or three moments that are like, man, I'm really proud about what I do for a living. Well, I didn't do this, but I will tell you what I'm really proud of most recently is what Sandra Chapman's done in Franklin with the um, cancer cluster. Oh yes. I that, have seen that's, that. that is, that's what journalism, in my opinion, that is like the definition right there. Don't even need to write any more, any more words. Just look at that, those pieces. And you know what that came from? That came from, and it's just so underestimated and I think underappreciated, maybe not even known to most people, but that was, those were, Sandra responded to two mothers who had the same concerns because the children had had cancer and they lived close and, and Sandra simply responded. And that led to what it's led to now, which I believe the EPA is looking into it and Donnelly's gotten involved with it um, or before he left office he did. Mm-hmm. That's journalism. That's civic journalism. That's making a difference. That's calling out, calling people out and making, holding them accountable. Why is the water and air contaminated down there? What happened? Um, who else is sick? What are we doing about it? 
all those questions. And so Sandra, to me, that, that piece most recently is, is one that I hold up and I say, well, that is why I still believe in, in local journalism. That's what our mission should be. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast with local legend, Teresa Wells-Denton. We're having a conversation about journalism in Indianapolis and its transformation over the last several decades. What was your take as you were reading through the Star's story on USA Gymnastics? You well, said this is what journalism is about. That's and- another example. I, I mean, how long, how much, how much longer would Mr. Nassar have gone had they not investigated that? Um, and hats off to the star because that was a great, great investigation and a great follow-up to the FBI, IMPD, mm-hmm. potential link to what was going on with Mr. Penny. Uh, that's another good example of it. I wish we had more of it. I wish we would see more to do, of it. Right? When it's time-consuming. Well, but your resources are the ones that are getting whacked, and the resources are 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 are, are the being turnover contracted. in the TV reporter community. This isn't a criticism; it's just an observation. The rep- the turnover in the TV reporter community just since I left the mayor's office in 2010 is astounding. It's astounding. And it makes it more difficult. Even the star, I mean, it's recently had, you know, four or five other people leave Uh, for people on my side of the PR world. It's like, okay, now who do I talk to? You know, the Rich Van Wykes and the Dave McAnally's and uh, Derek Thomas and those folks, you know, Jim Shella, who we interviewed for another podcast. Um, It creates opportunities, right, for younger journalists to do things a different way and bring a different perspective. So it's not all negative, but but you sure do like when you work in PR to have like, that's who I can call. And, and obviously, you were one of those people. Uh, Ruth Ann Gordon, at, she's, at, she's terrific. God love Ruth Lake. Ann. Hang in there, Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What's it like when, I can only speak to it from the, this side of the divide, when a reporter comes to you and you're her producer or his producer, and they come to you and they sit down in your office or at your desk and go, we blew this one. We've got a significant error. What's it like when... Because the idea, I think, that journalists don't care about right or wrong or true true or false, I dismiss that. They have their biases and they have their relationships. But I've never encountered really a, a reporter who just didn't work hard to get it right. Now, I may not like their version of right, but I think they do. Take us through what it's like when you have someone, your reporter or someone come to you and go, oh, we made a huge mistake. How do you handle that? Um. Because there's some pride and there's, you know, it's more than just trying to get it right. It's got to kind of be a gut punch, I'm guessing. Truth is best. Authentic, be authentic. Own up to it. Um, we, yeah, we didn't really have a whole lot of that. What I had was, especially on the political end, Robert, you'll get this. And I'm going to ask you about a- it. Angry, <laughs> angry, angry people, uh, angry campaign folks about polling that we would do. Because they didn't like your methodology they didn't like, or your pollsters? They didn't pollsters. like our methodology, our pollsters, our results, our this, our that. And um, we just had to stand firm and say, this is what this is what we commissioned and this is what we have. And we're going to stand by it. And a lot of media, as I recall, they, they try to pair an R and a D pollster. Like they, they do. And they're all, they're all R and D. Yeah. I mean, you know, you find a few who are not, but very few. Mm-hmm. And they're very expensive, the ones who aren't. So that's why you don't see them as much anymore. Right. Polls are expensive. Like Ann Selzer in Iowa, she's very good and mm-hmm. but she's you know, she's 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 great. She's awesome, but you know, it comes with a price and and I, I understand why it does. Take us back to um, and Teresa's been involved in political coverage for THR for a long, long, long time. Take us back to election night two thousand seven. 
Greg Ballard defeats Bart Peterson. One of the biggest that was the that was one of the biggest upsets ever. That was and I after that I always called it the Peterson effect. Never underestimate. Never. So when sixteen hit, it wasn't like the total shock, like it was for many. When Trump beat when Trump beat yeah Clinton yeah it wasn't because I always I learned from that that the Peterson effect or the Ballard effect however you want to word it uh, you just don't ever underestimate anybody you don't underestimate uh, what the opponent does or doesn't do that may be a misstep and you don't underestimate what the the uh, challenger is capable of so it was it was a great big good lesson for us for me personally do you remember that night like because oh, uh, it was Peter Restoven and Robin Winston were probably yes. working for you at the yes. time as uh-huh. on-air commentators do you just remember, I mean that was political for someone who covers politics an upset like that is is one you remember more than just when the chalk seems to always cover just what did you think of that a completely new person who really nobody heard of and no one really knew. Sorry, mayor, if you're listening, uh, winning this race, because I mean, Peterson was mayor for eight years and he kind of thought he could be mayor as long as he wanted. And that's no slam on him. He was obviously a very, very good mayor, but when you're covering an upset of that magnitude, is it, is it difficult not to be too conservative as a news organization, or are you just like, let's be the first one to call it. I was working at channel eight that night. That's the only reason it gives me a frame of reference. I don't recall how we called it, but I know that we were all a little shocked. And I do remember this. I remember, uh, mayor Ballard coming in the next day, uh, to do his little tour of duty with, with all the media. Mm -hmm. And he was so gracious, you know, and I remember him telling us about doing the, uh, producing the commercials from his basement. I was and his press secretary. I brought him I, there. I, and the looks, dear, on, yes, yeah, and the we looks just, on some of the reporters' faces were like, I remember Raider looking at me like, you got to be kidding me. It was like, very shocking. Yes, no doubt. But, you know, uh, he did an admirable job for his time in office. So I just do remember it being very, very, I, I, that was a benchmark for me personally as a political you know, reporter, producer, planning manager. I will never underestimate the uh, challenger. Can you think of other political contests or, or personalities who have, have left their mark on you? Like this guy was a great interview or, you know, I remember being there when X happened. Well, I was fortunate enough in t- 2008. Uh, if you guys will recall, the primary here was pretty mm-hmm. heated on the democratic side and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Yes. And, um, I, uh, recall being involved with a few one-on-one interviews. And so I was really up close and personal with these would be presidential. Well, they were candidates, but mm-hmm. one or two or three could become president. I'm sure. You know, um, so my, um, I really took all that in and I, and I, and I filed it in my mind and I thought, boy, this is this job, this job. I mean, it's hard to get those things done and the one-on-ones and all the logistics sure. that go into it. But, but when it came down to the core of me personally and, and my interaction with, with these folks, I thought, wow, what a front row seat. This is the best front row seat you could ever get. Cause it was extraordinarily rare for Indiana to have a say in who the nominee was oh. going to be because our primary is in May and the caucuses and primaries for the election cycle start in 
early January, whether it's Iowa or, or New Hampshire. Same thing kind of happened in 2016 when the Republican primary extended through. But 08 was the, the one that was the crazy. I mean, it was six weeks of surrogates in, in the state, and we were chasing them all over, and you didn't know really what was going to happen. And uh, yeah, it was very, very interesting, very interesting. One of, one of my most memorable times at my, uh, at my job there. Have you ever gotten in an argument so heated with a political flack that it makes you wonder why you emphasize politics perhaps as your career? Cause those of us who work in politics or used to whatever I do at the moment is, uh, you know, there's a lot riding on it and, you know, we're under a lot of pressure to get the best possible coverage. I mean, how do you handle that when, when you think, well, look, we did a completely an honest story and you don't like it. And I'm just don't know what to tell you. I mean, is that kind of what you say? Um, I used to tell Mayor Ballard, he would complain about an editorial in the star. And I was like, just because you don't like, it doesn't mean it's not right. Um, it, you, you just have to be objective. And then, and then I'm, I'm like one of those people who likes to put myself in the other person's shoes. So why, why would X person from X campaign be angry about X story? Well, what if I was X person and X? So I just sort of take that all with a grain of salt and just try to mitigate everything and say, look, we did, we, you know, and I'll, and I'll go back through and make sure, <clears throat> is it, was it fair? Was it accurate? Did we get it right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to go through and do that. And if we did that, which we normally did, I would just come back and say, it was the, it was a fair thing. And I'm sorry you don't see it that way. But, but that always makes- with that caveat that I know what, put yourself in that, in that campaign person's shoes always. Without mentioning any names, of course, can you think of one or two times where it's like, oh my God, we're going to fight. <laughs> I'm going to hit him. I I'm so mad. I'm going to hit him or I'm going to throw something at him. Or- uh, no, there was only one and that was a few years ago. <laughs> I can't mention names. <laughs> there was one, yes, and a kind of a, a nasty uh, voice message, but I, I understood. So I didn't go there. I just let and it you go. Can't, and, and so does it make you... Does it embolden you to say, look, that's good journalism and we're going to do it again if the facts present itself? Or does it make you a little like, oh, shoot, we've hit this guy in the mouth. Maybe we should leave him alone or her for a while. We speak truth. I mean, you have to speak truth and then you have to hold these, you know, these people, people who run for public office, they're they're Mm -hmm. big boys, big girls. And I always feel like they have to be uh, able to be held accountable, excuse me, accountable for that or to whatever questions are asked or standards are, 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 are set out. I mean, they have to be held accountable or don't run. <laughs> Let me it's make, really simple. In yeah, my no, that's true. And it, and obviously that deters a lot of people. Some people it doesn't, but some people may are like, you know what, why would I put my family through that? You know, right. cause I got a DUI 27 years ago and now everybody's going to know about it. Or, you know, my wife and I split up for two years and then we got back together and it's going to be on the front page of the paper. I mean, it seems to and me that's really unfortunate because I think it does detour a lot of younger people from jumping in and getting involved and exploring perhaps being a candidate on either, either side of the aisle. And that, that is really unfortunate. Let me make a statement and you can attack it. And this is, this is shows my bias from a political nature. The, the, the media, whether mostly national, but perhaps local is hopelessly, ridiculously liberal. You want me to attack that? Please. 
Or say, uh, Robert, you have hit upon the truth. Robert, <laughs> I'm going to tell you this, that most people that I've worked with in a newsroom in my 30 plus years, the majority were not liberal. They were completely the opposite and still are from a person, from their personal, mm-hmm. if you went in and looked at their primary voting record, if they even vote in the primary, it would not be on a, on a D end. it would be not on a D end. They so, would be, they would be very conservative in nature, conservative thinking. It's, it's, it's really incredible when I hear liberal media and I'm thinking, but I worked with a lot of, you know, conservative folks and, and, uh, middle of the road people, um, very few liberal, what we would call liberal, mm-hmm. right? I mean, sure. very few, uh, by definition, liberal. Did, in my world, in in my my experience in local. Sure. So you get a call from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington D.C., which is where the White House is. So the President of the United States wants to come see you, or wants you to come see him to visit. He's going to give you a half hour of his time. Help him with his media relations. You obviously know Mark Lauder, um, who right. worked for the vice president. Uh, and we have some other Indiana connections there, obviously. What would you tell him? Would you say, Mr. President, you asked for my advice. Here it is. As far as us coming to do that? or my- him, him paying you $100,000 for a half hour of your time to say, help me understand the media and tell me what I'm doing wrong. Or tell me everything I'm doing is great. Uh, well, you, again, you have to be truth truth you would have to be objective and tell the truth and no matter which way the the cookie crumbles on that it's it's truth and you can't but are you personally like upset or offended when you hear fake news uh, yeah yes i was when i was still with 13 yes because i knew what we did every day was not fake i mean what we did every day was again you know connecting with our community Holding, holding people accountable, especially public officials, seeking truth, uh, you know, re- reporting with a compassionate heart and a critical thought in our mind, all those things. And I know that that's what every journalist who's a true journalist, that's the mission every day. Those, those points. It's and, not fake. And so you would tell him... It's You're not fake. The- <laughs> I would it's say not- it's not fake. That's who we are. That's what we do. That's what our mission is. Um, and it's offensive when I hear that that term because that's not what I knew for 30 plus years. And that's not what I believe is still going on, you know, locally, nationally. Did you ever have a chance to go work for a politician? Did you ever get approached? My dad in 1978. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm assuming you worked no, for him I, when he was I've running for sheriff. Thought. I've given it thought, but no, I don't think that's where I want to go. But no one ever approached you and said, hey, come. Because, no. you know, there's a lot of crossover these days that there, you right. know, there quite frankly didn't used to be. I mean, you've Mark got, Lauder. Mark one. Lauder used to be at Channel 6. Uh, Prophet, who works for uh, Curtis. Curtis Hill now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the terrific Jeremy Brilliant, who yes. worked for Curtis Hill and then and then left. Uh, uh Maureen Hayden, who used to work mm-hmm. for, I think it was CHNI or CNHI. The newspaper conglomerate, newspaper, Yeah, that's right. Who went to go work for, I believe it was Suzanne Crouch. Is that correct? Uh, so there's more of that than there used to be. Is that a good thing, a bad thing? Does it make it's you kind of go, well, you, you covered this Republican. Now you went to go work for this you know, Republican or Democrat. So what exactly was happening? 
Because there was a lot of discussion of that during the Obama years because there were a tremendous number of journalists who went to go work for the administration. People on my side of the aisle, you know, noted that with a little bit of disdain. Um, inherently, I think journalists should should have the I word integrity. OK, and so it's a great I mean, to me, it's an easy, smooth transition if you're going to go work for a public office holder. Because that person, too, should just embody integrity. So integrity, integrity, get it? I mean, mm-hmm. you're, just, you're just crossing right over from one part of integrity to the other part of integrity, theoretically. Sure. That, that's kind of how I look at it. And I don't have a problem with anyone doing it. You talked, we talked earlier about uh, personal beliefs and, and, and being a journalist and how they can intersect. And it, it intersect is very difficult. We're here. Leaders and Legends. With Teresa Wells Ditton, longtime television producer here in Indianapolis, lifelong South Sider, very proud Ron Colley rebel. Ron Colley has been in the news in 2018 and probably will continue for a while uh, without diming each other out. You and I had a text exchange <laughs> yes. that weekend before the uh, story hit. Uh, my kids go to Ron Colley, so that's why I was bird dogging it. And you probably had two separate I, hats on as a journalist who has going to have to cover it. And as someone who is very proud of what is honestly a terrific, terrific school, tell me a little bit about how you, I'm not going to say kept it professional because that's not the right way to put it, but like put up the Chinese wall as the the, lawyer said. Yeah. Uh, I was just, again, honest and authentic with everybody uh, that I dealt with through that time. I'm assuming the school was smart enough to contact you at some point. Well, I contacted them, Mm -hmm. and uh, they were uh, very, again, very authentic and and as honest as they could be about the situation. There were some legalities involved, so they couldn't completely get, you know, give me everything. But I appreciated what they did give me, right? And I reached out to Shelly and uh, Shelly Fitzgerald, who's the counselor at Ron Colley, whose uh, marriage uh, to same sex marriage was put in the news by by somebody or some people. Yeah. And it became a significant uh, controversy here in Indianapolis because she was uh, forced to leave her job as as a result. I think she's still on leave. But basically, Mm -hmm. yes, she's she's on paid leave. And I didn't know Shelly. So I was sort of taking a chance and I wound up getting to know her and uh and I did I feel conflicted I certainly did I felt very conflicted I I understood Shelly and and that that dynamic and that issue um yet I'm you know born and bred South Sider and I'm a Ron Collie rebel and I sent two people two kids through there so so that that was one story honestly that that really I was very torn with that um, but I had to do my job, and my job was to seek truth again. And um, I think we did a really good job of that. And uh, I'm not sure how that's going to play out in the very end, but that was a trying, trying time for me personally, just from the um, the personal standpoint of how how I was a little, little uh, shaken about the whole uh, situation. Did you feel? Did you feel like you knew the community? Because Ron Colley got the living heck beat out of it. And as I know that you and I have discussed, I wrote an article for the Star that I think appeared in maybe September of 2018 that basically defended the school and kind of snapped at the archdiocese a little bit because the archdiocese was the one who 
was making all the decisions and Ron Colley is the one being treated like the pinata. Um, is it, did you feel like, Hey, I went to that school. I know these people, they're not a bunch of, you know, X, Y, and Z. And maybe you brought a different perspective because you're from there and you live there. I did behind the scenes. Yes. But in our reporting, you know, we were down the line and again, objective, I hope it, it appeared to me that we were, I looked at all of the stuff that we did all the stories we produced, everything that went out online and social media. And I thought like we were as objective as we could be given everything that we had and knew and given everything that uh, both sides were giving us um, in terms of uh, sound bites and, and talking to us. So do you think Ron Colley was taken by surprise? Cause th- I, without, again, without punking out our uh, text exchange, we both agreed uh, this is going to be a national story. It's just a matter of time. And it was, yes. And I um, I don't know if they were taken by surprise, but um, I was a little bit on how far it went. I mean, all the way to the Ellen show and and whatnot. Um, and I just really only hope that something good comes out of it for both sides because it was a rough time there. That Those six weeks or whatever that was, that was, that was rough on both, both ends, no matter where you stood and what you believed in and who you believed and who you blamed and you know, however you felt about it there, there, it was really rough. And I just hope that at, at the end of the day that, you know, something good, something good and positive comes out of it. I really do. And do you, do you, is it your belief that journalism is well placed to push an income or an outcome, excuse me, uh, one that's positive? Or is that just not your role? No. I mean, clearly journalism has, has, I would say this, and you can please push back. I would argue it's undeniable that journalists and journalism has taken a stand when it comes to LGBT issues toward expanding rights and recognition and caring and love and whatever you want to say, kindness, respect. Clearly they have come, as someone who worked for Mike Pence during RIFRA, I'm well placed but, to. But I, I, I don't know I, if they've come to a stand. They've just come to a point where they're asking questions about it and they're, they're asking people they're asking those who hold power uh, questions about it. They're questioning it. They're putting it out there. They're saying why. They're asking why. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're saying, I think that's healthy. I think you should ask why. Why is this the way it is? Why is whatever law the way it is or whatever law, how should it be? Or could we look at how it could be? So I just think they're asking why. I mean, certainly people do have opinions and certainly, you know, journalists, some may have opinions, but I think most of them are pretty much, they're, they're trying to be down the middle and, and it may not feel like that, but I think that's the basic, when you walk out the door to go do the story, no matter what it is, you're trying to be objective. You're trying to seek truth. You're trying to hold people accountable you're trying to play it down the middle, even though you may not agree personally with whatever it is you're covering. Last question. And I, I would not necessarily disagree with that while at the same time saying my personal experience, both working for Mayor Ballard. During Robert's going to called, argue with me. No, I'm not, <laughs> no, well, I'm, hopefully it's okay. I'm, hopefully I, I'm too understand. polite a host, even no, though I'm an, an insider. No, I, wa- I, I want your, I want to hear well, from you. Well, I worked for Greg Ballard during what we always called gay cupcakes when the cookie place. Right. And, uh, right. Thank you, Ray Cordopassi. If you're listening for that phone call that morning, that was the day we broke ground on Cityway, 
And Cordopassi from 59 called me and goes, hey, what are you doing today? And I'm like, we got this big groundbreaking on Cityway and, you know, all the stuff with all the Lily execs and all these city leaders. I'm like, are you calling to ruin my day? And he, he laughed. He goes, you better sit down. <laughs> uh, oh, you got to be kidding me. And that's a terrific, you know, beautiful, uh, devoutly Catholic couple over at the city market. And they they spoke out of school. They don't get to make that decision uh, about the city market. And it's interesting because. I remember going over there right before Mary Mills interviewed me because she went to interview me over there. And I said, look, I can't Mills are. Yeah. I was like, I cannot defend you, but I'm not going to beat you up. I said, you just went too far. And for those who don't remember, uh, IUPUI Gay Student Union Association called Just Cookies in the city market and said, will you make cupcakes for our meeting? And they said in response, we don't make cupcakes. And even if we did, we wouldn't make them for your meeting. And this was in 2010. And that kind of was the first real salvo in, in kind uh-huh. of the culture wars, for lack of a better term, that hit Indianapolis for about four or five years at, at varying, varying degrees. It would bubble up and then go away. I am the only person, I believe, who has gotten hate mail uh, from both uh, liberals and conservatives on the LGBT issue. Uh, it's quite interesting. The number of people who thought I was a dangerous, psychotic, uh, progressive, you know, granola eating nutcase when I worked for the mayor and I was... <laughs> Pat Buchanan reborn and I worked for Mike Pence. I'm like, no, my issues are the same. It's or my stance is the same. And I, I give Greg Ballard credit because during I remember sitting walking to his office as he was writing re- reading the speech, practicing the speech that I wrote for him for the groundbreaking for Cityway. And this must have been September two thousand ten, I think. And uh and him telling me about it and him looking up at me like, You can't be serious and he said, What's our message? And I said, Everyone is welcome at the market and he goes that's what I'll say. And I wouldn't allow him to be interviewed at the groundbreaking. I did all those interviews. But I said, look, Mayor, this is a good issue for you. You need to be out there. We can, uh-huh. we can, we can defend what we need to defend without stomping on this poor couple uh, who just made, quite frankly, an error in judgment. And, you know, if you've got a booth at the city market, you serve everyone at the city market. Now, you can argue whether that should be the case if you don't work at the city market. But those are the kind of issues that I think you have in a growing city with an even with an ever more diverse population. And I can certainly say that the coverage and the attitude I got towards the reporters on behalf of reporters when I was seemed to be woke, as opposed to where I seemed to be Neanderthal, were different. And that's just my personal, that's my experience. So that's really interesting to hear from your your end of it. I, probably, I mean, I'm, the receiving end of it from from our end of it, from the media end of it. It's very, very interesting uh, perspective. I do. I, I would say that the media likes to be seen as crusaders and whether that's watchdog or investigative, that sort of thing. I mean, I have no, there's no bigger fan of Sandra Trappen than I am. I think she's an absolutely amazing person. I don't work with her that much anymore, but she's obviously terrific. Greg Goggins, her photographer is even better because he went to how anyway. And so I would say that for the media, LGBT is their version of the 50s, 60s civil rights movement. And I think that they, much as the media in the 60s finally took a stand and said, we need to, we need to help out this movement because it's long overdue. I do believe the media has, has consciously or subconsciously said, this is our, this is our civil rights movement. But, but they could be taking a cue from society. So I, you know, I don't know. I, no, I, I agree. That, that they're just listening to what they, we mm-hmm. uh, are listening to what we're, what we're hearing, what we're hearing viewers and and, and folks share with us. And, and again, that goes back to just the whole so- social media evolution. That's why you hear about this, uh, those kind of issues so often, frequently. And 
um, with so much passion because there's an outlet now for people to share their thoughts. Sure. Sure. And that just, you know, to your point about newspapers and stuff. And when you were a kid that just didn't exist. No, no. I mean, it was completely different. The, uh, we're here with Teresa Wells. Ditton. it's, Leaders and Legends, we end at the podcast, each podcast, with the same five questions for every guest. Are you ready? I'm making the sign of the cross. <laughs> <laughs> you want to just say, Ron Colley, pray for us while we're... Yeah, yeah, Ron Colley, say Jude, pray for us. <laughs> what was your first car? My little blue Chevette. Year? 1980. <laughs> <laughs> It may have been, wait a minute, it may have been the 76 Sportabout that got handed down. It had like paneling. It was the first you car know. you paid for. Oh, that would be. That an, you paid for. You bought I with your for, money because you have a job. I paid for, um, I bought it off a of Welliver, John Welliver, killed in the 19, mm-hmm. uh, 1992 mid plane crash. Mm-hmm. They owned a, uh, a dealership down in Martinsville and it was a 1980. Chevy tan stick shifty junker. <laughs> did you spring for the tape deck? Uh, I think I did. Yeah. It had air conditioning in it. So that was good. What was the first concert you attended? Peter Frampton. Frampton comes alive era. Uh-huh. 1976. Where'd you go see him? Market square arena. Come on. Where Brand else? new market square yeah. arena. Hadn't been around there. The, uh, a uh, live version of uh, Do You Feel Like We Do is one of the greatest songs of all time. I liked his long curls versus the short. Was it, do you remember if his shirt was unbuttoned? Um, I don't remember that. <laughs> I just remember that my mom and dad weren't real keen on me going. <laughs> I was only like 15. Did you go by yourself? No, I don't remember who I went with. I think I had a date or something, and that was even worse. I mean, it was like, (laughs) for them, it was worse. Not for me. It was fun. Uh, I don't know that we've come up with anything better yet than Ballard's uh, first concert, which was Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, yeah. At Bloomington. (laughs) Oh, my. If you could recommend one book for anyone to read, which book would you recommend? Honestly, I'm I'm not much of a reader, but right now, and this is probably going to uh, set Robert on fire, but <laughs> I am currently reading Becoming. That was, that was going to be my guess. The uh, autobiography, is, is it considered an autobiography by yes, Mrs. Obama, by Michelle Obama? I just Obama? have a real, uh, I'm, I really envy and enjoy smart women and men, but... Smart woman. I just, I just, I'm fascinated with it. Buy well, it. I, if the Democrats don't run her for president in 2020, they're making a huge mistake. I can't believe that that that's not been discussed from day one till the end of days. I think she would be a terrific, formidable candidate. Um, and and you know, would I vote for her? No. But I tell you what, uh, I would shake her hand all day for um, <coughs> what she did for veterans. She was particularly. Uh, and their families. Good. I mean, the fa- families. Yeah. I mean, she was very, that was one of her causes and passions. Absolutely right. If you could witness any event in history, be there when it happened, which event would you choose? That's a good question. I think I did already, which is kind of a weird answer for you. You already witnessed it or you already I did. told me? I witnessed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I was able to go field produce for the 2009 inauguration, and I knew that was history, that when Obama was sworn mm-hmm. in. And again, like or dislike, that that's not what I'm getting at. I'm getting at the fact that was history. And sure. I stood there in that mall, and I was with really mil- maybe millions of people. I've never seen that many people. And uh, we were there to do a job and whatnot, but but there were times when I just stood there and went, wow. You know, I hope my kids pass this along to my grandkids, and I hope I hope that this can be woven into them and that they understand how big that was. Again, like or dislike, sure. political aside, that was no, history. It, and that's and, the same reason why Catholics are particularly proud of John F. Kennedy. And I w- that would you, be my you, second one. You, well, I you would have to know the the tremendous amount of anti-Catholic, clan-driven bigotry in the fifties. You know, post right. post World War One, especially um, that he had to run against. Now it's being Catholic is seen as this incredible you know benefit, and it wasn't just a generation ago that you know he had to give speech after speech about I'm not going to take orders from the Pope. That just seems ridiculous now. I, yeah. But it was a real issue back then. And I, I think that that would be the second thing that I would have liked to have witnessed and been around if you could sure if you could last question before we let you go if you could have dinner with anyone in the world who would you choose anyone living right now anyone anyone living right now boy i'll pick up these are these are stumpers (laughs) that's what we do here leaders and legends stumper questions i'm sorry i've been interviewed by seagull mills even van white gave me a hard time every once in a while uh, what's it like being on the other side of the uh that this is very weird yes no kidding <laughs> we don't even have the Klieg lights on you man uh boy i you dinner know, with anybody in the world a couple hours just to have a conversation i may have to go back to michelle obama or this is going to really freak you out uh I, I'm really fascinated with uh, Lady Gaga. Why? Other than the fact because, that she's immensely talented. Because and- that. Because of that. And I just want to know. And she's Catholic, too. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know that. Yes, because she's, she's is it Italian? She has this beautiful, was it Italian? Stephanie. Well, I don't even know what her name. But, but her, just, her real name is this beautiful Italian, I think, name. Yeah, and I'm just fascinated with, with her, her evolution from, from singing to acting. And I just think that that... Anybody with that much talent would be interesting to, to speak with or to listen to, mainly listen to, ask a few questions and see what happens. The way I, you hesitated, I thought you were going to pull out Jane Fonda and then, yeah. No, probably. I'm not going that. <laughs> yeah, no, and I don't know. You'd have been right. Uh, yeah, that would have been Lady tough. Gaga might sound so superficial, but I think there's a lot there. I think you, there's a heck of a lot there. Well, you know, you, you, if you read, you read biographies and autobiographies and interviews with people, even famous people who are... Um, particularly well-known for X, Y, or Z, right? Whatever that is. There's a common theme. And one of the things that th- that's a common theme when you read about successful, well-known people, celebrities or scholars or whatever, they'll almost all say, if asked, what intimidates you? Their answer is almost always talent. Like just raw talent is intimidating to certain people, to a lot of these celebrities, because they encounter it so much. Right. So someone who's you know a wonderful singer looks at Barbara Streisand and goes, oh, 
she's just so incredibly talented. I find it intimidating. And, and there are, there are other examples in sports and other that. So what you say about that makes sense. It's just because she's a celebrity for that reason doesn't mean that she can't be intimidating or talented or make an impact as she clearly does in some of her uh, charity work and things like that. No, those are all, they're no wrong answers. <laughs> that's for sure. You have been a terrific guest. Thank you for letting me uh, ask you questions for a change. I got to get Van Wyke on here. I got to get I, some reporters yeah, on here. You do need to get Van Wyke. Yes, he would be. <laughs> oh boy, he, you wouldn't. You wouldn't get too many questions in with Rich. Oh no, he no, no. would answer them to the nth degree. <laughs> let me tell you, he's a he, good one. He's like a lot of almost all reporters I've dealt with. There have not been many that haven't been just been really terrific people. Our conversation with Jim Shella was. I mean, was fascinating um i can get frustrated as much as anyone but but it doesn't really redound to the personal level uh, but you've been terrific it's very kind of you Teresa wells didn't to come join us here on leaders and legends thank you for joining us thank you very much for listening to leaders and legends brought to you by veteran strategies incorporated if you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services please send us an email at robert at veteran that's robert at veteranstrategies.com. 